Welcome to Counter Apologetics. I'm your host, Emerson Green, and today I'll be explaining why I'm an atheist. So I originally started working on this document called Why I'm an Atheist, and patrons know that I made an episode about the same subject a while back, and it expressed my feelings accurately at the time, but, you know, I kept reading and kept growing and changed my mind, and then I started a new document. So the plan was that this would be episode 100 of the podcast, would be this capstone, but this struck me as increasingly absurd, and kind of just too broad of a question, too big of a topic, not to talk about, but to make this, you know, final-sounding episode about it. I don't think there really can be any finality here, where it's like, okay, I've covered all the objections, I've perfectly handled this issue. So I came to think that that idea was kind of silly, and the document that I wrote even is starting to feel out of date, you know, as time goes on. So I thought I'd just share how I'm thinking about this now, with the full expectation that I'll continue to update my views and my approach as time goes on. And it'll probably change, because it has changed. Some of these changes will be relatively superficial. Some of them will likely be fundamental. One area with potential for change is methodology. There's a dispute in philosophy of religion between, for example, Graham Oppie, who prefers a theoretical virtues approach, where we try to explain as much as we can with as little as we can, roughly speaking, and the likes of Paul Draper, who are committed Bayesians and prefer an abductive approach, making an inference to the best explanation. Oppie is skeptical that we can be, you know, objective Bayesian updaters, but there's obviously something to the abductive approach. Inference to the best explanation seems to be a pretty good way of approaching scientific and philosophical issues. Maybe there are ways of synthesizing the abductive and theoretical virtues approach, and maybe some aspects of the dispute are irresolvable. I don't really know how to settle it. So, with full recognition that I'll probably change my mind about some of these reasons and even about methodology, here's why I'm an atheist at this moment in time. So there are five reasons, broadly, why I'm an atheist. Number one, we don't need a god to explain anything. Two, there are few phenomena that are better explained by theistic models than by atheistic models. Three, there are many phenomena that are better explained by atheistic models than by theistic models. Four, theism is more metaphysically profligate than naturalism as an explanation. And five, theism suffers from internal problems. So let's start with one. We don't need a god to explain anything. It's not a question of whether atheists or theists can account for the relevant evidence. Atheists and theists are both capable of explaining the data. There is nothing that one can point to and say, 
that God is absolutely necessary to explain that. Likewise, there's no suffering so appalling that a Christian couldn't conjure up an explanation for why an all-good, all-powerful God would continue to behave in a way indistinguishable from non-existence. Same goes for divine hiddenness, religious confusion, and so on. Again, theists and atheists are both capable of accounting for what we know, however implausible those accounts may seem. So my case is not deductive, since I'm unaware of any unambiguously sound deductive arguments for or against the existence of God. We need not invoke a God to explain anything about the world, and likewise we need not appeal to an absence of God to explain anything about the world. Consequently, I think the task at hand is to construct competing models that explain the evidence, and then compare the theistic and atheistic models, and ask which does a better job explaining the world, all things considered. Timothy Perrin and Stephen Weikstra wrote a paper about abductive atheology, among other things. In a section entitled, The New Abductive Atheology, Draper's Humane Approach, they excellently lay out how I and many others have come to approach the question of God's existence. Quote, We take abductive atheology to be a species of abductive metaphysics, seeking to harness abductive inference, the inferential engine that drives theoretical discovery in science, as a means of evaluating metaphysical hypotheses like naturalism or theism. Abductive inference, broadly speaking, inference to the best explanation, is here understood as both explanatory and contrastive. It is explanatory in that it moves from judgments about the degree of explanatory fit with data to conclusions about the probable truth or falsity of a hypothesis. It is contrastive in that these judgments concern two or more rival hypotheses, using comparisons of explanatory fit to lower or raise the relative probabilities. Paul Draper, like Richard Swinburne, sees abductive confirmation and disconfirmation as conforming to, or at least illuminated by, the probability calculus, and in particular Bayes' theorem. He also, like Swinburne, sees explanatory fit as involving both simplicity considerations and predictive fit with data. End quote. So I want to move on to the nature of justification, since that'll be important if we're going to ask if atheism is justified. One idea I've heard from Joe Schmid that's made an impression on me, Joe Schmid is Majesty of Reason on YouTube, by the way, is the person-based nature of justification. There's no such thing as a justified belief just in the abstract. Something is justified to someone. Justification is person-based. We can't abstract justified beliefs from persons, since we can't abstract beliefs from those who hold them. So different persons can have different justifications for the same belief. Is that belief justified or not? One person might be justified, the other might be unjustified, even if it's the same belief. There is no belief that's simply unjustified, abstracted from the person who holds that belief. Further, we each find ourselves in different epistemic contexts. As Schmid puts it, quote, whether one is justified in accepting an argument is a function of a whole concatenation of factors that are individual-specific. One's priors, one's expectations on various hypotheses, one's seemings, one's life experiences, the books and articles and videos one has watched, one's body of testimonial evidence, etc. We each occupy a unique position on the grand epistemic landscape. End quote. 
2. There are few phenomena that are better explained by theistic models than by atheistic models. Let me borrow an illustration from Paul Draper to explain how I'm approaching evidence. Say we have two jars of jelly beans. One is filled with mostly red beans and a small amount of blue beans, and the other is filled with mostly blue beans and a small amount of red beans. Both jars also contain an equal number of yellow beans. Someone takes a handful of beans from one of the jars, we don't know which, and we have several red beans, a few blue beans, and a few yellow beans. So the evidence in this case is compatible with the beans coming from either jar, but it's surprising on the assumption that they came out of the second jar, and unsurprising on the assumption that they came out of the first. So the question is, how many red beans, yellow beans, and blue beans have we drawn? An atheist could defend the claim that, regarding the evidence, we've drawn only red and yellow beans. The weaker claim, that there are very few lines of evidence that are best explained by theism, leaves room for the occasional blue bean. I would endorse the latter. Even though there are blue beans, for example consciousness, religious experience, I don't think there are very many of them. Either way, I think atheists should make use of the fourth point, that naturalism is a simpler explanation than theism, which we'll come to in a moment, and Draper's insight on the fallacy of understated evidence. Quote, This mistaken reasoning is committed when one uses some relatively general known fact about X to support a hypothesis, when a more specific fact about X, that is also known to obtain, fails to support that hypothesis. For example, a prosecutor might try to mislead a jury by pointing out that the defendant bought a knife just days before the victim was stabbed, neglecting to mention that the knife that was purchased is a butter knife. End quote. So once Draper's fallacy of understated evidence and the simplicity point are understood, one can at least appreciate why one might think that there are not that many aspects of our world, if any, that are, all things considered, better explained by theistic accounts, then by atheistic accounts. Number three. There are many phenomena that are better explained by atheistic models than by theistic models. So here's where we get to the red beans. A crucial question is, if theism were true, what would I expect the world to look like? An omnipotent god has a lot of options. Needless to say, the natural world does not look much like I'd expect it to look if god were behind it all. I've written about many of these topics separately, but here's a list of individual lines of evidence that are surprising on theism. Divine hiddenness, atheists, evolution, biblical errors and contradictions, the fact that improving the Bible is trivially easy, biblical confusion, religious confusion, the history of science, the meager moral fruits of theism, Christianity's limited spread, cognitive biases, anti-religious experience, psychopaths, tragedies and gratuitous suffering, divine silence during tragedies, the biological roles of pain and pleasure, natural evil, teleological evil, and animal suffering. Alternative conceptions of God, 
for example a non-omnipotent god, could help with some of these problems, but by no means does a non-omni-god avoid all these problems. And a few of these lines of evidence only apply to Christianity, but most of them apply to most forms of theism. Atheism, in conjunction with natural explanations, makes better sense of our world than theistic explanations. For atheists, there is no one with both the power and inclination to prevent pointless evil, biblical confusion, and so on. Gratuitous evils, religious discord, and so on, will naturally occur unless something intervenes to prevent them. This explains why those things exist. Theism cannot help itself to this explanation since, for theists, there is a being with both the power and inclination to prevent those things. Plate tectonic theory explains why there's a natural tendency for earthquakes to occur, and atheism explains why there is no one with the power and inclination to prevent earthquakes. So atheism, in conjunction with plate tectonic theory, predicts that earthquakes will occur from time to time and cause pointless suffering. The probability of these facts listed above is lower on theism than on atheism. In other words, they're not what you'd predict on the hypothesis that an all-powerful, all-knowing, and morally perfect designer of nature exists, since they are to be expected given the natural course of events on a hypothesis of indifference, these facts strongly favor indifference over theism. We're making a likelihood comparison. We don't need to show that the probability of this evidence on atheism is high in any absolute sense, just as long as we know that the probability of this evidence conditional on atheism is higher than the probability of this evidence conditional on theism. Again, it's a likelihood comparison. So I want to take a brief interlude between 3 and 4 to talk a bit more about the idea of a cumulative case. I can see how one might get the impression that I'm just throwing things against the wall here. I hope things seem a little more organized than that. But the idea is to build a cumulative case. If you ask a philosopher of religion, why are you an atheist? Why are you a theist? You will likely not receive just one answer. Or if you do, it'll require quite a lot of explaining. They want to build a cumulative case, or talk about more fundamental issues about how to rationally assess metaphysical hypotheses. And so I wanted to ask you what your favorite argument for God is. Uh, well, I think the arguments are cumulative, as of course they are for any scientific or historical theory. Just to take historical theory, um, if, if somebody is on a charge of murder in the courts, the courts just don't produce one piece of evidence to suppose that he did it, e.g. that he was at the scene of the murder at the time. They produce many pieces of evidence which together make it probable that uh, uh, that person committed the murder. Likewise, with the uh, arguments of the existence of God, most of them uh, start from some particular recognizable feature of experience of a general kind, which the atheist can recognize too. And all of these um, increase the probability that there is a God. So I think one shouldn't isolate them from each other. They, they add up. Think about number three, this crucial section where I lay out different lines of evidence that support atheism. I didn't really make the arguments, 
I laid out the structure the arguments would take and listed the lines of data to which I would appeal to fill in that argumentative structure. The probability of evidence E conditional on theism is lower than the probability of E conditional on naturalism. So, E is evidence favoring naturalism. That's the structure the arguments in 3 take. And then I list the various lines of evidence, for example, animal suffering, teleological evil, the biological role of pain and pleasure, religious discord, divine hiddenness, and so on. I didn't actually explain why those data are less expected on theism than on naturalism, I just provided the outline of a case. So if I'm going to make a part two, I would spend most of the time explaining why the data to which I've appealed are better predicted by atheistic models than by theistic models. Some of those arguments, like divine hiddenness, are stronger on their own than others, like the argument from cognitive biases. The argument from hiddenness is fairly strong even outside a cumulative case, but all these arguments I've listed are a part of my cumulative case. Number four, theism is more metaphysically profligate than naturalism as an explanation. Pierre-Simon Laplace, an astronomer and mathematician, sort of the heir to Newton, presented his work on celestial bodies to the emperor Napoleon, who said to him, you've written this large book on how the universe works, and it makes no mention of God. And Laplace replied, I had no need of that hypothesis. As Grammopi puts it, quote, the naturalist does not have beliefs in anything over and above the things a theist believes in. From the standpoint of the naturalist, theistic beliefs are pure addition. And from the standpoint of the theist, naturalistic beliefs are pure subtraction. In short, naturalism is a simpler theory than theism. A central premise of my argument in support of atheism is the principle of parsimony. This general principle states that if there are two competing theories, and one is simpler than the other, then, unless the more complex theory provides a better explanation of something than the simpler theory, one should endorse the simpler theory. End quote. I think the force of Oppie's point is sometimes underappreciated. It's not just that naturalism is a little simpler than theism, so if we're perfectly rational we should favor naturalism, however slightly. The point is that theism is redundant. The natural world works without God. We have no need to appeal to God to explain the natural world and how it works. It all works without that hypothesis. So let's move on to some specific examples. Theists often claim that there are objective moral values, and this is best explained by God. Some even claim that it can only be explained by God. And for the sake of argument, let's say there are objective moral values. If there aren't any objective moral values, this obviously favors atheism over theism, but let's just say there are objective moral values. Can naturalists provide an account of objective moral values? Yeah, of course they can. There's no incompatibility between moral realism and atheism. So take the group of moral realists who claim that objective moral values are irreducible. They're postulating theoretically primitive goodness. There is some place where the moral chain of justification ends. Theists, on the other hand, take God's goodness as theoretically primitive. There isn't anything else in virtue of which God is good, 
that's where the moral chain of justification ends. The point is that in both cases, somewhere, the buck simply stops. If objective moral value is taken to be primitive or basic, as it is by many realists, theistic and atheistic alike, then theists can't appeal to objective moral values as evidence for theism over naturalism. They're both making the same move here, but atheists are doing it in a way that's arguably simpler. So here's another example. Theists often make some version of the cosmological argument. Naturalists can give no explanation of the existence of the universe, while theists can explain the existence of the universe in terms of God and his creative activities. Of this, Oppie writes, quote, Whatever range of options is open to the theist to explain the existence of God, exactly the same range of options is open to the naturalist to explain the existence of the universe. If it is open to the theist to say that God exists of necessity, then it is open to the naturalist to say the universe exists of necessity. If it's open to the theist to say that God's existence involves an infinite regress, then it's open to the naturalist to say the existence of the universe involves an infinite regress. If it's open to the theist to say that the existence of God has no explanation, then it is open to the naturalist to say the existence of the universe has no explanation. Insofar as we're interested in explaining the existence of the universe, the postulation of a God who creates it does not bring with it any explanatory advantage. End quote. And you can substitute the universe there for cosmos or nature. I think Oppie's insight here has radical implications for contingency and cosmological arguments, as well as virtually anything in nature to which theists appeal. On any piece of data, any phenomenon, naturalism can do at least as well as theism in explaining it. Each one of those cases requires a little special attention, but it remains true that we don't need God to explain anything. And in general, I think that these non-God accounts are simpler. One more example. Some theists accept the theory of evolution in full, such as Francis Collins. Collins believes that evolution is the means by which God chose to create humanity. This is called theistic evolution. So a naturalist might take evolution to explain what we observe in biology, and theistic evolutionists believe roughly the same thing, plus God. If we use our razors to subtract that entity, nothing is lost, and nothing is gained by stitching it back on. The aim of theistic evolution is just to make theism fit with the data, and with our best scientific theories. It does not confer any sort of theoretical advantage. Furthermore, if we suppose that a designer indirectly brought about humanity using evolution, that changes everything for the worse. If an omnipotent, omniscient designer intended things to be this way, intended for the history of life to have the character it has, that designer is a psychopath. If he's not inept, he's malevolent. And by inept, I don't just mean inefficient. A benevolent designer, if he isn't lacking in power, would have to be lacking in skill or knowledge if he's not intending to cause mass death and widespread suffering. So if we took the theistic evolution route, we'd be multiplying entities unnecessarily, thus making the theory worse, in order to further make the theory worse. Mark Sedaris has said that in Indian philosophy there's a principle, quote, known in the West as Occam's razor, but that Indian philosophers call the principle of lightness, for it dictates that we choose the lighter of two competing theories, end quote. When we have two theories that explain all the evidence, we should go for the theory that needs less to explain the same evidence. 
naturalism posits fewer ontological entities and is thus the lighter theory. Naturalists explain the same data theists explain, but they do it with fewer metaphysical tools. If nothing else, the relative simplicity of naturalism compared to theism should lead us to assign a higher prior probability to naturalism. When we're comparing competing models, we should be considering theoretical virtues that could render one theory superior to another. One such virtue is lightness. Since naturalism posits fewer metaphysical entities, it is lighter. I should also mention that this point works against deism as well as theism. From my perspective, theists are taking common ground, like moral values, evolution, and adding unnecessary metaphysical baggage. It's always natural thing plus supernatural thing. And to quote Laplace, we have no need for that hypothesis. So unless theism provides a better explanation of some relevant phenomenon than naturalism, we should endorse naturalism. Regardless, it is a point in favor of naturalism that it can explain the data with fewer metaphysical tools. Simplicity plays a role in scientific advancement. Why not philosophical advancement? We should get rid of the supernatural for the same reason we got rid of the luminiferous ether. Number 5. Theism suffers from internal problems. What I call internal problems fall into three loose categories. Inconsistencies, the use of problematic concepts, and absurdities. So these problems do lower the reasonableness of theism. They don't quite fit into my abductive approach, but I still want to mention them. These don't rule out all forms of theism. These objections are necessarily less general than the ones I've been talking about since internal problems are most abundant when details of a hypothesis are elaborated. So, first, inconsistencies. As I said in the first point, all deductive arguments for or against the existence of God ultimately fail, since logically coherent responses are on the table. However, these responses are often incompatible with popular versions of theism and lead to quite unusual, in other words, uncommon, forms of religion. For example, universalism comes in handy when trying to answer the problems of hiddenness, confusion, and when you're trying to solve inconsistencies that arise due to eternal conscious torment. Most Christians, however, are not universalists, so while deductive logical arguments do not decisively accomplish their ultimate aim, they can, in some cases, decisively rule out Christianity in certain forms, forms which are quite popular. The problem of heaven is one such interesting logical problem, so is the alleged incoherence of divine attributes. I made a series of episodes on atheism, as I see the subject, but it's not a very dialectically useful approach. The theist can always just stipulate a new definition of God. And just because a theist, you know, maybe hasn't thought about it that much, and currently holds to an incoherent notion of God without realizing it, doesn't mean that they couldn't just update their definition of God stipulate new properties, and then the problem's gone. And then you just have to start over again. So like I said, dialectically, it's just not that useful. Even though if you put a gun to my head and said, is God coherent or incoherent? I would lean incoherent. I really would. 
I don't think that we've progressed past that as an argument. I don't think it's been decisively shown to be wrong. For better or worse, the general idea of divine incoherence was tied to the mast of logical positivism. So when verificationism went down, so did it. But it's not as if you have to be a logical positivist to suspect that there can't be an omniscient and omnipotent being, or a conscious being who exists timelessly. As I said, these are just suspicions of mine. There are responses and counter-responses and counter-counter-responses. In any event, the subject of God's incoherence is not really discussed in polite company anymore. Some philosophers believe this is because we've progressed past it, not that it's merely out of fashion, but I don't think it's actually been discredited. Anyway. There are additional internal problems with theism that stem from the fact that theism makes use of problematic concepts, concepts such as libertarian free will, special creation, eternal conscious torment, and the scientific, historical, and moral inerrancy of the Bible. Many forms of theism come built in with certain notions of God, the afterlife, free will, and the Bible. If God's attributes can be demonstrated to be logically inconsistent, that particular version of God can be discarded. If libertarian free will can be demonstrated to be incoherent, as some have alleged it to be, any version of Christianity for which libertarian free will is an integral part can be discarded. Similarly, if we discard the notion of special creation, or eternal conscious torment for non-Christians, or the literal truth of certain passages of the Bible, certain often very popular forms of Christianity can be ruled out as well. As I said, internal problems like these can only apply to specific versions of theism. So if you think it can be pretty much decisively shown that the earth is not 6,000 years old, a form of Christianity, for which that notion is an integral part, can be discarded to that same extent. I remember being told by a close friend, you know, you pretty much can't be a real Christian and believe in evolution. So if the claim is, either Christianity is true, or evolution is true, then we can decisively rule out the form of Christianity that my friend had in mind. One internal problem for theism is religious epistemology. Problems with religious epistemology are not to do with logical inconsistencies, but rather the faultiness of the methods of how we come to know about God's existence, nature, and relationship to us. Revelation, consulting holy texts, Dreams, visions, prayer, religious experience, and faith are probably not reliable means of gathering accurate information about the world. As I said, five is about internal problems. Inconsistencies are easier to demonstrate than absurdities, since absurdity is in the eye of the beholder. Even so, I think there are informal, narrative style arguments against forms of theism that show, for many, the absurdity of a religious worldview. Put simply, many of us are unable to believe the story. This is highly subjective and personal. Nevertheless, I think it should be mentioned in an episode with a title like this one. So, here are a few expressions of what I call a narrative argument. Christopher Hitchens on the 100,000 years point, Scott Clifton, for theoretical bullshit, on God's checklist, Dan Barker on The Good News. Atheism has some intuitive appeal 
and I think these so-called narrative arguments can help elucidate that intuitive appeal. This is an idea I plan on exploring more in a future episode, so for now I'll just put a few links in the show notes in case you're unfamiliar with those three examples of what I'm calling narrative arguments. I've been explaining myself in very general terms, and only provided an outline of a case. Were I to succeed in 1 through 4, my atheism would be rationally justified. 5, though it doesn't cast as wide of a net as the first 4, allows us to discard a few more elaborated and widely subscribed versions of theism. Certainty is too much to ask for in most contexts, and this is all the more true in metaphysics. I'll happily concede that theism in some forms can be rational. I can only explain why my better judgment leads me to atheism, and hope that I've provided you with something of value to factor into your own assessments. Were I to assign a credence to atheism, I would fix my stake around point 0.9. Since we don't need a god to explain anything, and there are very few phenomena that are better explained by theistic models than by atheistic models, and because there are many phenomena that are better explained by atheistic models than by theistic models, since theism is more metaphysically profligate than naturalism, as an explanation, and suffers from various internal problems, I think God probably does not exist. That's all I have for you today. Alright, I have new patrons to thank. Emily and Micah. Thank you, Emily, and thank you, Micah. And I have a new patron to add to the illustrious Patron Hall of Fame. So let me thank my Patron Hall of Famers. Phil Stillwell, Grim Frenzy, this is not a name in French, Pre-Nifty, Richard Crossan, Rory B. Murkowski, and Henry W. Bartholomew. Welcome, Henry. And you can support this show on a per-episode basis at patreon.com slash counter, where you can get early access to every episode and access to bonus episodes. If you don't have the money to support on Patreon, but you still want to join the religion of atheism, you can follow our social media on Twitter and Facebook, subscribe on YouTube, leave a five-star review, or tell your friends about the podcast. You can also subscribe to and leave a review of our sister show, Walden Pod. Our theme music was written and performed by the band Whalers. The song is called Magic Tricks and was used with permission. Thank you for joining me today. I've been Emerson Green, and I'll talk to you next time.